0: OK, so to start, let's just do our favorite thing. Who, who's up for a pop quiz? Oh, a little collective anxiety. There's like two. The people who have done homeschooling are like stoked on pop quizzes. Um, OK, so he, here it is. It's not. is. Not, let's just dampen, dampen the anxiety. Um, so can you continue the lyrics from this popular Christmas song? Are you ready? OK. Here, the song starts like this. Joy to the world. This is great! Okay, yes, so um, c- congratulations, congratulations, um, all of you, uh, all of you passed. So here, um, if we're lucky, this 300-year-old hymn will be stuck in our minds for the rest of the day. And but this is more of like a theological treaty than it is a Christmas jingle. And I, I I hope that we're all like singing, let let earth receive her king, let every heart prepare him, like... These are just, these are beautiful words, and especially that first line, "Joy to the world." The, curios, like the curiosity I have is, we're coming into this week and the season of Advent, and this song like blasting through department stores or on your Spotify most played playlist. Like, um, is is do we know what we're singing about when we're singing about joy? Like, are, are we on the same page when we're singing these words, "Joy to the world"? And I, I guess. Um, it's, it's a curiosity because this song is itself less of a Christmas song than it is. It's not about the first Advent, but it's about the second Advent. It's, it's actually a song about the second coming of Jesus, which is interesting, but that's not where my curiosity lays. My curiosity is, is really with, do we know what we're talking about when we're talking about joy? And, and my guess is, is that we're all a little fuzzy on what the other person is talking about when they're talking about joy or when, I don't know, Michael Buble is sping, like, singing about joy. Is he on the same thing? So let's just get some facts on the ground. Uh, Merriam-Webster's. So Merriam-Webster's comes at us with this three-part definition of joy. You'll see it behind me. I'm just going to roll right through it. It is, one, the emotion evoked by well-being, success, good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. They call this delight. The little subsection to one is the expression or exhibition of such an emotion, which they call gaiety. Two, a state of happiness or felicity, bliss. Or three, a source or cause of delight. And so is this what the writer of this hymn some 300 years ago, Isaac Watts, is this what he had in mind when he was writing this hymn? Now, now uh, the, the truth is I have no idea, and I don't know if there's even a way that we can tell if if, if this definition was was active uh, during Watts' time, but I, I, the, the truth is... Uh, is I don't know that and I don't think any of us can, but my guess is that Watts was drawing more on the biblical imagination for his definition of joy than the popular imagination. And In the Bible, joy, it's more nuanced than just an expression of delight or this public display, this exhibition of delight. And so just give me two minutes and I'm going to do a brief sketch of joy in the Bible and where we see it uh, coming out and together. So if you would uh, just consider, consider the people who are known as the Israelites. These are the people who lived through and then recorded the events of the Bible. Are we on the same page? the Israelites in your mental imagination whether they're like i don't know on a felt board or a finger puppet or a tv show or a vegetable or so we have the israelites in our mind these are the women and men who lived often under forced military oppressors they were the persecuted religious minorities so we might now we're doing a little course correcting from the finger puppets these are people who live in intense circumstances and the foundation story one of the foundation stories for the people of israel is this story called the Exodus. It's where the God of Israel overcame the tyrant of their day. This is Pharaoh. And in and, and these dramatic displays, we would call these, these, these plagues or these acts of justice. And in this moment, God, on the other side of these intense displays of justice, God brings the people of Israel through the waters into freedom. And in that place of release from captivity and bondage and enslavement, they start crying out with joy. Eventually, as the story progresses, you see that they find themselves in a promised land. And then every year, around springtime, these people would retell this story. They would actually reenact this story of deliverance and freedom. Which, which means that they're thinking every year through practices and ceremonies and actual shared moments as family of the suffering they endured. So in the midst of suffering and frustration, joy becomes one of the loudest sounds that you hear coming from these people. And this is, this is like it's in kind of the, the neuromusculature of the people of Israel, it's, it is their story. Remember, there's a, a guy, when I lived back in Michigan, and he, was, um, he was really interesting. He was a, a play who lived in his mom's basement. And he, he, like, um, he saw, I have like a, a Jewish tattoo thing. I, and, and he saw it and he's like, oh, are you, are you Jewish? Are you my people? And the conversations, the plumb line of our conversations was how Jews knew how to suffer better than everybody else. And it was really interesting. And I would just, so what do you mean by that? And this, this was, I mean, he, he wouldn't describe himself as orthodox or observant or anything, but as his ethnic heritage, he knew how to suffer. And he said, I make a good practice of it. And he would periodically tell me about how he's practicing suffering in the season that he's in. It's just, this is a part of the, of the people of Israel. And so what's, what's the point here? What does this have to do with Advent? Well, joy... In the biblical imagination, it's less about these public displays of delight, less about these public exhibitions of our good feelings, and it's even less about like the the present moment itself. Although that's not irrelevant, but in the biblical imagination, joy has has this capacity to draw on the past so that you might look ahead in the in your present moment. It actually allows us to to reposition ourselves with hope. It allows us to wait. Joy has a way of reframing our waiting. And for the people of Israel, you see that joy, it is a relational response to the living God. Joy is not just something that they choose. It's not something that's happening to them as though they're not participating. It is this relational response to the living God. And if we're interested in a starting point, Merriam-Webster's is fine. You can go through and just work through those definitions. But the moment that you, you start to ask questions related to how, like how do you cultivate joy? How, how do you posture yourself in a way where you could give joy or participate in joy? Merriam-Webster's is useless. It gives you the what, but it doesn't give you the how. And so would you say, well, what does joy mean? And you go to Merriam-Webster's, yeah, that's fine. But if you ask an awkward grammatical question like, how does joy mean? one that's confusing, but you go, well, yeah, I don't, I don't know. So how do we cultivate joy? What, what do we do? Because I don't think that we're really interested in a starting point with joy, I'm making an assumption. I think we want something deeper. I think we want the sustaining reality of joy. And so to kind of get some shared language around joy, here's um, some words from neurotheologian, Jim Wilder. These have been really helpful for me of, of unpacking joy. So this is joy as defined by Jim Wilder. Many definitions of joy are static descriptions of a state, similar to what we might say for a flavor like salty. So from the human brain perspective, joy is more of a dynamic relational experience. Joy is a, quote, glad to be together state amplified between two minds that are glad to be together at that moment. So if you have someone near you, just, um, we did this last week and it was fantastic. Um, turn to someone near you, maybe somebody you came with, and give them that awkward grin. Just pull down your mask for a moment and give them that really big smile. Hold, hold some eye contact and give them, not like the, then I got you. Here we are. It's this moment. Okay, so if we just keep doing this, something's something's happening. You see, this is this is joy is dynamic in that it doesn't just stay still. You could have a cookie, and that cookie is great, but it stays there. Your happiness is is lo- locked in that bite. And so, what do you have to do to get more happiness? We have to take another bite, and s- soon enough, the whole tray is gone, and uh, you feel unwell. But joy seems to build it's because joy is relational. And the signature of joy is that we are sharing that moment with someone who is glad we're there. In short, joy is a relational experience of gladness. So when we sing a song like joy to the world and we make that known we're we're saying something that it's it's more than just circumstances. There's something deeper in the midst of that. And so with that in mind, to just uh, turn again to our teaching text Uh, Picking up in uh, verse three of Philippians one, we're gonna lean a bit more into this joy thing. So here's, here's Paul. Paul is writing as an incarcerated person to a church that he loves. And this is what he says. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy, and listen to this, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the day of completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So uh, just as a, as a disclaimer, you probably know Philippians better than you know Ph- Like, than you think you know. Because Philippians is like the greatest hits of one line Christians, like moments. I don't know, what am I trying to say? Popular verses, tattoos, things like that. Um, And so you'll hear some of these things and you go, that sounds really familiar. It's because it is. And we just heard it right there that, that Paul has this confidence because of their partnership in the gospel, which informs his joy that God, who started a work in these people, will actually see it to completion. There's the joy. And then the joy here, it is the motivating reality. It's kind of like the fuel, if you will, for what Paul is doing here. It's the fuel for Paul's prayers for these Christians. And joy throughout the letter, it is like the plumb line. Fourteen more times in the letter to the Philippians, joy will show up. You'll see it in different forms. You'll see it as rejoicing or gladness. But it's the same root word in in the Greek, which is the the language the New Testament was originally written in. And it's this word kara. Give, Give that a try. Kara. Yeah. Um, so, if you have a friend named Charis, there you go. Joy is is what they're what they're working with there. And so, to what end? Like, what, why is Paul returning time and time again to this idea, this reality, this relational experience of gladness? And why here? Why at the beginning of this letter is he already joining our minds to the reality of joy? Well, we actually get to see some of the context here. Are you ready for it? Okay, it's just in the next verse. So um, look down to verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you. That that is joyful because of our partnership in the gospel. So it's right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. And listen to this, whether I am in chains or your your, your translation may say, whether I'm incarcerated or imprisoned or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. And God can testify to how, how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. So did you hear the hint there, the the context? If you didn't, it's this line, whether I am in chains or I am confirming, defending or confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Whether I am in chains. In other words, even if I am imprisoned, joy persists. And just let that sink in for a moment. Even if I am imprisoned, joy persists. I could (laughs) How is that the case? How is it the case for this, this person? And you see the letter starts off, Paul and Timothy. So he's with this ministry team and he has one of his friends from Philippi who's there. There's these people. How can they in that context, in these circumstances against all odds, have joy? Well, let's just um, pull back from the text for a moment. Um, when you think about joy, which I'm gonna invite you to do, um, what is the, what's the context? Like, what's the stuff? You don't have to say it aloud. I <laughs> mean, you can if you want. But what are the places, the scenes, the sights, the smells, the sounds? Like, what are those? For me, just like I have this, this picture that kept coming to my mind. One of my best friends, he recently moved from Detroit to Denver. And Iowa being right where Iowa is and you know the freeway running right through, they stopped and so they had their moving truck and he pulls out of his moving truck all... You know how you get when you're moving? You're kind of disgusting. You just don't care about the world. You're like in sweatpants for all your life. I guess it's just normal life now. Um, but there you are, you get out of it. And I like he comes out and he has this big smile and we greet one another. It was fantastic. It just it kept coming to my mind. Like, my point is... I wonder if the shared experience we're having is when we think about joy, we think about moments of gladness. We think about like happy circumstances. Are we on the same page here? Are we we tracking? Joy seems to have this thing. Prison, however, does not seem to be on my mental map of where joy exists. And yet this is what's coming to the fore. And so we have to just reckon with it. Like, what do we do with this? Do we just go, oh, well, that's just the Bible. Like, Paul encountered the living Jesus on his way to persecute Christians, you know. <laughs> That's just his thing, but it's not the same for today. I think there's actually more to be said here. And, and the best as I can understand it, I think this is the reason that Philippians 1 comes to us this second Sunday of Advent. See, Advent starts off, if you don't remember, this is the season that we're in. It's the season of collective waiting, where as a church, we are cultivating intentionally our longing for Jesus. We're learning to wait. We actually looked into this this past week, and then all of this week, through the texts and the lectionary, it's all about cultivating anticipation. So we start with waiting and then like the, the, the lectionary texts throughout the week, they just kind of lean in. If you're unfamiliar with what the lectionary is, it's a collection of uh, texts that are meant to guide you through the Christian calendar. And so th- they're all leading you to this place of anticipation. And then when you get to all of the texts, you get four texts, you get a, a Psalm and an Old Testament and a gospel and a New Testament. And in all of these, but one, it's about anticipation, it's about cultivating this longing for the salvation of God to come to his people. So we hear about John the Baptist, the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And it's, it's like, it's amazing. You're like, oh my gosh, yes, it's, it's going to happen. And then you get our teaching text. You get what feels out of place for me, this, this moment of Philippians 1, and, and I think if all of these other texts are, are inviting us to wait, inviting us into anticipation, L- like a mother waiting to give birth to their child, it's like, okay, this is, this is happening. I know something's happening here, but I, I want it to come. F- Philippians 1 actually gives us the how. Philippians 1 unpacks for us what that would look like. And when I say how, I'm not meaning uh, like a step-by-step process. I'm talking more about like a, like a posture. of, And so this is the invitation to see this. Who are those who Paul prays for? This is not a rhetorical. So who's, who's Paul praying for in this passage? Boom. Linnea coming in. The church at Philippi. Yes. So how does he describe them? He, he describes them as his partners in the gospel. So Paul always praying with joy for his partners in the gospel Let's just take this one step further. What does it mean to be a partner in the gospel? Have you ever thought about this? Like, is this for us? Is this just the church of Philippi? And maybe what comes to your mind is like, okay, um, like worship or prayer or, I don't know, some other Christian-y types of things, support, friendship. But, but but it goes further, this idea of partnership. Check out how Tom Wright unpacks this. He says, in Paul's world, this, that, that is uh, partnership, and this was a normal word for a business partnership in which all those involved would share in doing the work on the one hand and in the financial responsibilities on the other. The Philippians then are partners in the gospel. They are partners in grace. They are in the gospel business, the grace business, along with Paul and their gift proves it. And so, again, how is it the case that joy might persist for Paul in the season that he's in? We, we see it right here. It's, it's in the midst of this partnership. And, and I think that if we can see this, that, that this root of joy for Paul is actually in the context of this type of community, then we might be able to receive the wisdom that is on offer in this Advent season, See, as as a church, we know that we are not here yet, and yet we hope to be the type of people who can move into Advent with grace. And by that, I mean actually do what it's inviting us to do, to wait, to allow the discomfort of waiting to show us what we don't want to do. And I think that if we, if we move toward this and we've received the invitation of Philippians today, this invitation to joy and the incubator of joy, which is, a, is this partnership in the gospel, then we might be able to like look at the uncertainty of, I don't know, 2022 or another variant or just what the heck life and community looks like with a little bit more confidence. And so for, for the Philippians they see this with paul they see that there's a new reality that has come to bear in their world and and when paul says that they're partners in the gospel this is this is the new reality and it's this jesus is king and caesar is not Which means that Jesus is king and Trump is not. Jesus is king, Biden is not. Jesus is king, it's like the money you make is not. Jesus is king. This is the new and orienting reality. This is like the pole star of their inward being is going toward this reality that Jesus is king and they're invited to be citizens of a new kingdom. And remember, what is joy? Well, joy is a relational experience of gladness. And this is key. See, Paul is not, quote unquote, choosing joy. Have you seen those, I don't know, maybe you've seen it in like uh, decor in a bathroom or in a coffee mug, or maybe you've posted this sometime. I think I have posted this statement, choose joy. But what are we saying there? Implicitly, we're saying that the will is the highest human function. But the will is not the highest human function. Otherwise, the things that we wanted to do, we would actually do them. Think about the will this way as leaves are to a tree, so the will is to your life. The will is readily visible, so are the leaves on a tree. And yet, the leaves on a tree are the most prone to the blowing and shifting of wind. They're the things that fall off when the season turns. See, the will is not the highest human function. What, we're, what like, brain science is telling us, and I'm not a scientist, I just read those folks from time to time, is, is that our loves are actually the things that inform and have the most powerful motivation in our lives. And so Paul is not just choosing joy as though he just needs to exert his will on his circumstances, and even though he's in prison, he'll be okay. Which, by the way, doesn't that seem like what so much of the Christian life has been sold as? try a little harder, just be a little bit more holy, just lean into this a little bit more? Am I, am I alone in that? <laughs> what if there's a different way? What if there's a relational experience of gladness that the, that the living God wants to have with you and with me, and then we can be a community that is an incubator of joy? This is a cool story. This is a new reality where Jesus, who is king, ushers in a new way to be human, or perhaps just reveals what that's been like all along. And we, we get to see this. This was really rad for me, and I hope it is for you. So we actually get to see Paul experience this. Uh, flip or tap your way on over to Philippians chapter 2. You see, Paul is not alone. And this is the gift that he's talking about. The, the gift is this person. We see this Philippians two twenty five. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, and just stop right there. So the name Epaphroditus isn't of itself interesting. it means um, belonging to Aphrodite. Aphrodite is the goddess of lust and love and sexuality, and so here you have Epaphroditus whose namesake actually binds him to a different way of participating in culture <laughs> to um, like that's just a like that's a whole different world. And here he is, his life has been reoriented. He has a new king whose name is Jesus. And this is what extends from this person's new life. But listen how Paul describes Epaphroditus. My brother, coworker, fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs, for he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him and not him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him back so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy. And honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves cannot give me. See, Paul could remain rooted in this, in this, in the joy because of this gift. It's not just like he brought a nice care package with delightful treats. Maybe that's a part of it. It's it's actual care. Because remember, what is joy? Joy is a relational experience of gladness. You actually know more about this than you think you know. If you've ever had this moment where you're on a plane and maybe you've never flown on a plane, so if not, just allow your imagination to go there with me. And it would be like this, you're on the the plane, you go through all of the drudgery of of waiting and the boarding zones and finally you get in and you, you have all of your stuff situated. And then the uh, flight attendant comes over the intercom system or whatever and says, "Uh, so we have a delay and we don't know what it is. They're doing some tests. At that moment, you hear this kind of collective sigh of like, and like the tone of the, the cabin just kind of shifts. And then if you're fortunate, you have this small human in front of you in the seat who does this. And you see two little eyeballs pop their head either up above the chair and then immediately they're, they're gone again. And then slowly you see more of just than eyeballs. You see their face and they're smiling at you because they say, I will not wear a mask on a plane. Take that, FDA. So um, here we go. So and then the smile happens. And this happens about 17 times in the next 30 seconds. What, what happens in that moment? My guess is, if you're in an, like an okay place, you start to smile. <laughs> you, like, this, something is happening, Like this joy is building because this relational experience of gladness, this is so fascinating, like, we're actually created for that moment. This is this fantastic thing where, as you're looking at them, all of a sudden, they're seeing this joy reflected back, if it's true joy, in the left side of your face, right, right by your left eye. And what that means is it's imprinting on the right side of their brain, which that's where all of the joy gets built. And so this joy center in your brain is getting charged up, and it just keeps building and building as they're smiling and you're smiling, and it's, it's, it's that smile, like the biggest smile you can smile is happening. This is the gift that Paul receives with Epaphroditus, this this collective building. So of course he's always praying with joy because he has this. And then it grieves him to send Epaphroditus back. But he wants that joy that Epaphroditus has brought him to be present in this community, to be a reminder that this is the sustaining reality as we wait. This is what Advent invites us into. Like, wouldn't you want this? Isn't this like one of the most beautiful stories? I love how Paul finishes his prayer. He actually says this, from this place and from this desire, knowing that God will complete the work he started, this is his prayer, verse nine, Philippians one. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. And maybe that language is a bit distracting because it's uh, so churchy. So, hear this from Eugene Peterson in his Amplified Version. This is the message. So, this is my prayer that your love will flourish and that you will not only love much but well. And I'll just stop right there because the rest is just gravy that you will not only love much, but well. Like this is the thing I long to get caught up in. I think maybe at some level, this is why you're continuing to come back to a community that's as awkward as this one. Because you desire to love much and well, and then to receive that in kind. You wanna be a part and in a place that is an incubator for your joy. And that's who we want to be. We want to be a people of gladness and rest and delight. We want to be able to sing joy to the world and actually know what the heck we're singing about (laughs) because we've experienced it in the face of one another.